Hi, my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Crime Stories, Stories. a weekly true crime podcast where we do things and say stuff. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so it's actually a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. What's up? <laughs> I don't know. I feel very awkward tonight. Why? Um, I don't know. I feel. Do you need to drink a little bit of your I think I need Capri Sun? To, I think I need to drink a little bit more adult Capri Sun. Well, I turn it over to Nikki for our true crime headlines. All right. So both of my stories. Well, actually, no. I was going to say both of my stories are from Oxygen.com, but they are not. So only one of my stories today is from Oxygen.com. Mm-hmm. It was posted March 15th on 2021. I feel like 2021 is just as bad as 2020, but um, it says mom allegedly created deep fakes of her teen daughter's cheerleading rivals to get them booted from team. Yes, this is crazy. Yeah. So it says a Pennsylvania mother has been accused of creating fake and doctored images of her daughter's cheerleading rivals, falsely showing the teens nude, drinking, and smoking in an attempt to get them kicked off the cheerleading squad. (laughs) It's awful. It is. It's and awful. Part of me is like, this is why I have a hard time believing, like, when people take, like, uh, Twitter screenshots and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, just even Instagram, because I feel like they can be altered. Very easily. So easily. And yeah. it's like, I have a hard time, or even, like, text messages, I have a really hard time believing them because right. it's like... Well, and the whole thing is, is, like, it's... The fact that a suburban mother was able to create images 50. that were so... Like, I can't even do that at 31. Legit. I just, I don't understand. But, I mean, I feel like, so I feel like, can't you get in trouble for taking minors' photos and making them look like they're naked? Well, and that's the whole thing is, like, I don't understand what that falls under. So, I'm guessing, is it child pornography? Because the whole thing is, is, I'm assuming, I'm assuming, and I'm obviously I'm just guessing here, that the photographs that she used, as far as the bodies are concerned, are not of children, but she used minors' faces. Yeah. So she basically created child porn for all intents and purposes, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, does it say in the article what she was charged with? Or is it just like, uh, she was um... charged with three counts of crazy. <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to find what she was officially charged with. Um, and like nine times out of ten when these moms like Because I mean basically and, I think they're getting her on cyber harassment. Like and, cyber stalking yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Which honestly I okay so my guilty pleasure. Yes. I, I just kind of googled adult bodies photoshopped on child's head to see if something would come up. Apparently this had happened. Joey's going to get flagged. <laughs> this, yeah, right. had, this had happened before in 2009 and the Tennessee man was charged with virtual pornography. Oh yeah. Cause you're basically creating, you're creating, you're creating. and you're right. It's, it's just, it's gross. Yeah. It's gross. I'm, I was going to say my guilty pleasure is a uh, dance mom's. Yeah. And and I also love Jojo Siwa. So, I actually really I mean, love Jojo Siwa, too. I do. I love her so yeah. much. So it's like She's watching watching her, like, kind of grow up on that yes, TV show. Yes. It's just, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's very intense. But I feel like sometimes the moms are ten times more competitive than they the kids are. are. Like, the kids are like, I'm just here to have fun and dance because I enjoy it. Like, mom, you need to slow your roll. It's yeah, not like, the deal. one little girl is just like, she's like, I don't even want to be here. I'm just here because my mom. Yeah. 
I'm just like this is this happens a lot. Oh, because it happened again in 2016. Man convicted of altering images for child porn. But so, now, but are see, these guys doing it for the creep factor, for their own, probably. like, spank bank? Yeah. Or are they doing it for nefarious, well, other nefarious yeah. reasons? Uh, it doesn't... Uh, I mean, you don't have to dig too far. I really don't want your Google account flagged for, like, yeah. researching I'm how aware, to get away um, with child I, porn. I'm going to be honest. Just, I'm so worried that I'm going to get flagged because all I do is look up serial killers. Yeah. Well, I'm like, not going to look up anymore. I'm going to close it out after this. But this one, for example, the one from 2016... Um, David Guy, 61, of New Richmond, used Photoshop to place the faces of 11 different minors into images of very graphic adult and child uh, pornography. Woof. Uh-uh. Yeah. So, this is a thing, and it's disgusting. Yeah. Ugh. Awful. So, my second story from today is from People.com, mm-hmm. and this was posted March 23rd, 2021. Woman who fought back during attack to donate nearly $1 million raised for her combat anti-Asian racism to combat anti-Asian racism. Okay, so she yes. had like, there was money that was raised for her because she was attacked so now she's using yes. that money to donate for anti-Asian racism causes. Yes. Got she's it. 76 years old. Aww. I know, someone grandma. So basically, um, some her family had started the GoFundMe to basically pay for her medical bills and then she basically said that like she wanted to donate the money. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Sad that it needs to happen. Yes. Yeah. Man. But those are my true crime headlines of the week. Oh, I like how you put my little, like... I did. Oh, that's so cute. Oh, you're welcome. I know. You're welcome. I think I'm going to start a segment called The Things That Scare Nikki. (laughs) And the reason why I have anxiety... Like, I'm going to do stories as to why I have anxiety about certain things. Nikki, at least once a story, you're like, this is why I have anxiety. Or no, it's actually usually like, like, that's why I'm afraid of bridges. (laughs) Well, that's why I'm afraid of water. Oh my god, you're not That's even... why I'm afraid of people who have crooked faces. You're not even joking, though. I was going to say, I have such a fear of people who throw the bricks over the overpasses. Yes, we did talk car- about that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like... Do you know what I have a really big fear of? And I, I actually... about that today. So I thought about it today. It actually happened to me today. Um, coming out of the courthouse. I had jury duty. I wasn't, like, I'm not a defendant, I promise. So I was coming out of the courthouse. I was walking back to the um, parking garage to get my car. And... On the sidewalk are the grates that go down into the sewer. And, like, you have to walk across them. Yeah. And in the morning when I was walking towards the courthouse, I walked over them. But you can't really see that they, like, drop into an empty pit of despair. Yeah. But as I was walking back, the way that the sun shone on them, you could see, like, it is cleared down into, like, the depths of hell. And it, like, it scared me. Like, every single time I walked across the grate, I'm like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. It was awful. I have have really bad anxiety about, have you seen the people that get sucked into the escalator? Escalators? Yes, I have awful escalator anxiety. Yeah. <gasps> have you seen those? Yes. They're like literally, they just and like eats their, and they're like they eats their shoes, I, or I, like or they just get sucked into the and eaten by the escalator. Yeah. No, I, it is frightening. Um, I am going to go ahead and take over and tell you all tonight's bed crime story. This is a long one, but I'm excited to tell it. Um, so we were actually brought this story from one of our listeners. I know, Yay! Yay! 
This is our first like listener email, so it's very excited to get it. And uh, so I want to say thank you to Kelly, um, to that who told us about this case. She shot us an email and uh, told us a little bit about you know where she heard about it and the fact that there's a lot of information out there. So she thought it would make a really cool episode. She is right. Once I kind of started digging deep in it, it was very very interesting, very dense. Um, and this was one that neither Nikki nor I had ever heard of before. So mm-hmm. it was really cool to kind of research and learn a little bit more about the case. And, you know, as I'm sure you guys are aware from listening to a couple of episodes, you know that Nikki and I and Jovi live in Florida. So, you know, this case happens to be somewhat local to us. Mm -hmm. And so reading the source material and hearing where all of the events of the story take place, being able to also then picture in your mind kind of where it all happened really added to the realism of the story and really helped me to immerse myself in it made it honestly even all the more heartbreaking so uh this is the story of the murders of joan michelle and christy rogers so my sources are murderpedia and wikipedia but my primary resource is uh, from the Tampa Bay Times, which at the time the article was written, it was still the St. Petersburg Times. And uh, Thomas French, who's a staff writer for St. Petersburg Times and now Tampa Bay Times, um, he had written a long form article about this case called Angels and Demons. It was a seven part series in the newspaper. And Mr. French actually won a Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for this story in 1998. Um, so <laughs> the information in here let me tell you, is thorough (laughs) and his, his article is beautifully written. So a lot of this comes directly from his article. Um, so I hope that I do Mr. French justice because it is a uh, crazy and insane story. So here we go. So Oba Chandler was born to Oba Chandler Sr. and Margaret Johnson and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, Oba Chandler was the fourth of five children. When Chandler was only 10 years old, his father hanged himself in the basement of the family's apartment. His father's death in June of 1957 affected uh, Oba Chandler so much that he reportedly jumped into the open grave at the funeral as the gravediggers were covering the coffin in dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Chandler went on to Chandler went on to himself father eight children, the youngest of which was born in February of 1989. Between May and September of 1991, during the very same time of all of the events of our story, Oba Chandler was actually an informant for the U.S. Customs Tampa office. So he was a contact of the authorities locally in Tampa. So uh, Chandler was stealing cars by the age of 14. He was arrested 20 times while he was a juvenile. As an adult, he was charged with a long list of crimes, including possession to counterfeit money, loitering, prowling, burglary, kidnapping, and armed robbery. He was also accused of masturbating while peering inside of a woman's window. In one incident, Chandler and an accomplice mm. broke into the home of a Florida couple, held them at gunpoint while they were robbing him. Chandler told his accomplice to tie up the man with speaker wire then took the woman into the bedroom where he made her strip down to her underwear, tied her up, and then rubbed the barrel of his revolver across her stomach in some sort of, like, I guess, weird sexual thing. Dominance. That's the word I was looking for. Sexual thing. (laughs) Sorry, I'm like, I've never heard the story, so my brain is just like... Yeah. We're, we're, me and Jovi are making weird faces. faces. Yeah, we're just getting lots of faces. Horrified faces. Horrified faces of 
horror. Like, yes. So, um, on May 26th, 1989, the beginning of our story starts to, the, the events of our story kind of kick off. So, May 26th, 1989. Joan Rogers, who went by Joe, she's 36 years old, and her two daughters, Michelle, who was 17, and Christy, who was 14. Now, real quick, Christy spells her name C-R-I-S-T-E. So, I'm assuming it's Christy. There's no I-E. It's just an E. So, I'm going to say Christy if I am wrong. I would love to apologize, but it is, um, from what I could tell, Joe Rogers, Michelle, and Christy Rogers. They left their family dairy farm in Wilshire, Ohio for a vacation in Florida. They had never even left their home state before, so they were really excited for the vacation to get underway. The night before, Joe worked her usual shift. Um, she worked the midnight shift over at Peyton's. Peyton's Northern. Peyton's Northern was a distribution center for health and beauty products, um, and it was actually just over the state line over in Indiana, so they were right on that Indiana-Ohio state line. Joe drove a forklift and she worked the assembly line at Peyton's. Which I will say, I'm I'm from Ohio, mm-hmm. and that's basically all it is is distribution and things like that. Like my warehouses, grandma, and yeah, factories, and yeah. Like my grandma worked at the Colgate and like the pan soap place, and mm-hmm. like that's where everything comes and from. And can I just say that sounds really awesome to drive a forklift? Yeah, yeah. I'm just she's saying, a badass. A forklift. <laughs> I mean, I've done the hand one. Yeah, and I felt like but a like, badass. I've done the hand forklift. Yeah, yeah. to be like. Sign me up for that job. Well, uh, Jovi's, Jovi's fourth no, impression fun. was. I do mean, it, I was there. I felt like I, I was. I don't know if I can. That was it. <laughs> Lots of zhooging happening. Exactly. That's a badass, though. Oof. Okay, joking. It really is. Wow. So after her shift, Joe returned back to the family farm to catch some sleep before they started on their journey to Florida. Finally, around one o'clock in the afternoon um, on the 26th, they three of them got into the car. Joe backed it up to say goodbye to her husband, Hal. Um, Hal Rogers wanted to go with his wife and daughters, but the spring rains had actually been late that year. So he had to tend to the farm. And unfortunately, somebody had to stay behind, keep it all going. And in this case, it was Hal. So um, the girls made their way down the coast. They arrived in Florida. um, And the Rogers actually made a few stops around the state before they wound up in Tampa. So first they stopped in Jacksonville to go to the zoo. Um, Then they headed a little further south to Silver Springs. And they actually took a glass bottom boat tour. I always wanted to do that. I have never in my life wanted to do that. That is the (laughs) scariest thing I can think of. Then they uh, headed over to SeaWorld for a day. They also spent a day at Disney's MGM Studios, which is now Hollywood Studios. That's where it's at. Yep. And then the following day uh, made a stop to Epcot, which is my personal (gasps) favorite Disney park. But don't go during festival. No, don't. Don't do that. I love Epcot Especially so what? Which which one's the Bachelorette weekend? It's spring and it's Flower and Garden, right? Isn't that Flower usually and Garden, when spring? And it's around Mother's Day, yeah. so it's insane. Oh and then Food and Wine is yeah, just no. nuts. Nope. Yeah. Don't go during either of those. Nope. So once they were done uh, doing kind of like their Orlando tour, they started ahead uh, west towards Tampa. So it is Thursday, June first. They decide they're going to head um, over on I-4 towards Tampa. They're going to relax on the beach, visit Bush Gardens. And they wind up checking in to the Days Inn um, in Tampa around 1230 the afternoon of June 1st. 
Um, so there was a call placed from their hotel room phone at about 12.57 p.m. to the Bush Gardens information line. Do you remember when you used to have to, like, call? Yeah. I know. It's crazy. And what time? Just, what are your hours today? It's crazy. Now you can just go on your phone. It's insane. Um, they also had dinner that night. This is still all June 1st. They had dinner that night at the motel's restaurant around 7 p.m. And then they left the hotel. And that was the last time anyone saw them alive. So, uh, cut back to Ohio. Hal Rogers was expecting his wife and daughter's home Saturday, the earliest Sunday, the latest, depending on their drive, if they had to make stops, what have you. Um, and Joe was actually return, uh, due to return to work on that Monday. He hadn't heard from them in a couple of days. He actually even hadn't heard from them since they arrived in Tampa. Um, and there was no sign of them by the end of the day on Sunday. So he tried not to worry, told a friend, you know, I'm sure they're, quote, dinking around someplace. Um, kind of with that assumption, probably more the reassurance to himself of they're just running late. It's fine. They'll be here soon type of a thing. So three days later, on Sunday, June 4th, a sailboat called the Amber Waves was on its way home to Tampa after a trip to Key West, and it had just crossed into the Tampa Bay under the Sunshine Skyway Bridge when people on board said that they saw an object in the water, and one person notes that it looked like a body. Oh and God, it was indeed a female floating face down with her hands tied behind her back, her feet bound, and a thin yellow rope around her neck. She was naked from the waist down. A man from the Amber Waves radioed over to Coast Guard, and a rescue rescue boat was dispatched from the station at Bayborough Harbor in St. Pete, St. Petersburg. Sorry, St. <laughs> Petersburg, Florida. Not St. Well, I'm going to call it St. Pete now. I, I, uh, Sorry, I find it hard to call it St. Petersburg. I call it St. Pete. The Coast Guard crew quickly found the body, but recovering it from the water was difficult because the rope that was uh, uh, attached to the body's neck was also attached to something very heavy that could not be lifted out of the water. So the Coast Guard kind of notated where the coordinates were, where the body had been found. They cut the line and placed the female in a body bag onto the boat and headed back toward the station. The crew members had not yet even reached the shore when they received yet another radio message that a second female body had just been sighted by two people on another sailboat. This one was floating to the north of where the first body had been sighted. It was two miles off the pier in St. Pete. Like the first, this one was, this body was face down, bound with a rope around the neck and naked below the waist. The same Coast Guard crew was sent to recover it. And while the crew was doing so, a call came in for the third body. Another female seen floating only a couple hundred yards to the east of where they were. So the three bodies were taken to the dock at the Coast Guard station to be examined and photographed by police. Um, investigators were already arriving at the scene. The bodies were bloated and had begun to decompose because it was the heat of the summer and mm -hmm. the water was so hot. Um, but it definitely was possible to determine that they were three white women who appeared to all be fairly young. Um, the hands and the feet of all three were tied and bound in the same exact way, though the left hand of the second rescued body um the left hand had been loose from the binding so it seemed as though she was able to actually be able to kind of wiggle her hand free before she succumbed to the water um they all had duct tape over their mouths the second and third bodies had concrete blocks attached to the ropes around their neck and even though the rope around the neck of the first body had been cut they assumed that because of the second bodies it was concrete around the the first uh body's neck as well um, so at this point, back in Ohio, Hal Rogers had reported his wife and daughters missing. 
He had called all around to all of Joe's friends to see if they had heard from her at all. Um, he called her job at Peyton's to confirm that she was indeed supposed to return back on the Monday that he thought they were. Like, he was like, maybe I got the weeks wrong. Maybe they were supposed to go for two weeks and it was next Monday that they were going to be back. Um, but it was indeed supposed to be the fifth that they were supposed to return. He actually concocted a plan to withdraw money from the bank, hire a private plane and a pilot, and search by air all the roads that the Rogers women had planned to travel between Ohio and Florida on his own. But Hal did not get the chance to go. On Thursday, June 8th, the maid at the Days Inn told her managers about the room that seemed to be abandoned by its last occupants. The manager called the Tampa police and informed them that one or more of the hotel's guests were missing. And by this time in Tampa, the news of the discovery in the bay was in papers, on the local news. Um, and when Tampa police arrived at the Days Inn, it became clear pretty quickly that the missing women from the hotel were the missing were the victims from the bay. Um, and Hal, of course, was notified that evening of his loss. I'm, like, fucking so sad right now. Yeah. And I'm only on page six. I have 18 pages. No. Hi, <clears throat> Yes. So... Police got the make, model, and license plate number of the car that Joe was driving and had registered at the front desk of the hotel. When the car was not located in the parking lot at the Days Inn, began, uh, police began to search the area, and the car was parked just a few miles away near a boat ramp along the Courtney Campbell Causeway. The car appeared to have been parked there undisturbed since Joe and the girls had left it about a week before. The doors were locked. The passenger seat was pushed forward as though somebody had just climbed out of the back. On the front passenger seat was a sheet of Days Inn stationery, which was marked with directions written in Joe's handwriting that guided them to the motel, from the motel to the boat ramp. The directions said, turn right west on 60, two and a half miles on right side before bridge. Beside those words was one more instruction, blue with white. So turn right west on 60, yeah. two and a half miles. On the right side before bridge. Beside those words was one more instruction, blue with white. So the police were a long way from discovering who had killed the Rogers women out on the water, but whoever they were, it was a fair bet that they owned a blue and white boat. The second big lead came that same day. While the investigators were talking over the phone with the chief of, uh, of the detectives from Van Wert County Sheriff's Office, which is the county in Ohio where the Rogers had, Rogers had lived, the detectives wanted to make sure that the investigators working the homicides were aware of all the facts about the Rogers family. So he told them about Michelle, so the 17-year-old daughter, Michelle, and her uncle, John. John Rogers, Hal's brother, had raped Michelle repeatedly over the course of two years, starting when she was just 14 years old. Fuck. Yeah. Even though John Rogers had been in prison at the time of the murders for committing another rape, the investigators would not ignore the similarities between what had happened to Michelle at the hands of her uncle and here in Tampa. Both times, she apparently had been subjected to bondage with her hands tied. Both times, she had been raped. At 14? Yeah. For two years, it happened. Awful. So the investigators need to consider the possibility that John Rogers somehow may have orchestrated the murders from behind bars, possibly arranging for somebody with a boat to go get them out on the water. They needed to know more about the Rogers family, period. The better they understood Joe, Michelle, and Christy, the better their chances of discovering exactly how the three of them wound up out in the bay at night alone with somebody who they didn't know not would hurt them. Out on the bay. Absolutely at night. not. Not at night. Absolutely not. 
Hal stated that he wouldn't have been surprised if his brother did have something to do with the murders. His parents sometimes wintered in Manatee County, which is a couple miles south of the Tampa area, staying at a trailer park in Ellington, just a few miles south of the Sunshine Skyway Bridge. Over the years, John had joined them there. His last visit had been in early 1989, only a few months before the murders, and he had stayed there for several weeks. But after interviewing John at the prison where he was serving his time, the detectives decided that it would have been extremely difficult for John to have anything to do with the Rogers murders. Um, first of all, there was no evidence that he had even been aware that the three women were taking a vacation in the first place, making it unlikely that he would have been able to orchestrate the attack at all. Um, and the inmates that are housed with Rogers confirmed that John was a loner. He had very few friends inside and it was, would have been very surprising if he had had the connections or the clout to arrange a triple murder or a triple homicide, which is a murder. So I don't know why I corrected myself. Um, after meeting with John themselves, the detectives agreed that he seemed way too isolated isolated to have put together such a conspiracy. So the first break, as far as evidence is concerned, happened in uh, that October after the murders happened. Uh, Jim Cappell, the lead detective on the case since the day the bodies were discovered, was looking at a bulletin issued every month by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Somebody else had seen the bulletin and passed it on to Cappell, pointing to an item about a rape in the waters off of Madeira Beach. The victim was a 24-year-old Canadian woman who had been vacationing in Pinellas County and had met a man who took her out on his boat in the Gulf off John's Pass and assaulted her. Cappell checked the date of the rape. It was May 15th, two weeks before the Rogers women were killed. Do not let, do not, do not go out into the, the ocean with oh, a gets, random person that you just met. It gets worse. Please don't. Please hold. It gets worse. Um, he checked the description of the boat, light blue with a white interior. Cappell spoke to the Madeira Beach police investigator who had handled the rape back in May and learned the details of the assault. Then Cappell and another detective flew to Canada to interview the victim. They returned convinced that the man who had committed the rape probably was involved in the murders of the Rogers women. The woman who had been on vacation in Madeira Beach, or the woman had been on vacation in Madeira Beach with a friend, also from Canada. The two of them had stopped one night at a 7-Eleven when a man in the parking lot struck up a conversation with them. He was in a dark-colored four-wheel drive vehicle with tinted windows and a Florida license plate. Later, the woman would describe it to be either similar to like a Ford Bronco or even a Jeep Cherokee. Oh. He was older than the two of them, perhaps in his mid-30s. He was white, about five foot ten and 180 pounds, with blonde, slightly reddish hair. He said his name was Dave Posner or Dave Posno. The woman couldn't remember which. And he told them that he owned an aluminum company and lived in Bradenton. Um, God. He seemed nice enough, polite and easy to talk to. And he offered to take the two women out on his boat the next afternoon. The 24 year old woman had wanted to go, but her friend had not. So she went alone. That afternoon, they went out on the Gulf briefly and then cruised the intercoastal waterway. The man was friendly, talkative, appropriate with his words and actions. And when he returned the woman to the shore, he offered to take her and her friend out for the evening on a sunset cruise. He said it would be very pretty on the water and they should bring a camera. So again, the 24-year-old woman wanted to go, but her friend, again, didn't. And when she showed up at the dock that evening alone... Um, or when she, when they showed up at the dock that evening, the man seemed happy to see them, but irritated that the friend didn't want to come along. So he took the woman out on the water anyway. She brought her camera as he kind of suggested her to. And as they rode across the water, they were talking and she wound up actually taking the man's photo. By now it was getting dark and they were a ways offshore. 
Suddenly, as soon as it went dark, the man's demeanor completely changed. Now he was touching and hugging her, talking about how pretty she was and saying he wanted to have sex with her. When she refused, he insisted. The woman screamed and the man told her she was wasting her time. He said, what are you doing? No one's going to hear you out here. What are you going to do? Jump out of the boat? He told her to be quiet. And if she didn't stop screaming, he would cover her mouth with duct tape. He raped her, and when it was over, he told her to get dressed, gave her a thermos full of water, and told her to rinse herself off. He ripped the film out of her camera and threw the film overboard. As the woman huddled in the boat, shocked and terrified, the man started to apologize for what he had done. And he said to her, I've taken something from you that you can never get back. The man wound up pulling the boat in the water right off of, Saint, uh, right off of John's Pass and stopped letting her get out and walk back to the shore. Watch your step, he said. What a piece of shit. Right? Crazy. I know. I know. I know. Again, don't go on boats with random men that you don't know. Because once you're out there, yeah, you're out there. And then, like, when it's dark, you can't see shit. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, not to give him credit, but he's, no one's going to hear you. And there's sharks in the water. There are. Lots of sharks. Including the one in the boat with you. Yep. Mm-mm. Once the detectives got back to Tampa from Canada, they released the composite sketch of the Canadian woman's attacker, along with the description of the boat and the vehicle he was driving. There was no Dave Posner or Posno, who owned an aluminum company in Bradenton. There were many leads that came in from the composite sketch, but none of the detectives found... um, found that any of them stuck as the one year anniversary of the murders approached a woman stood inside the kitchen of her tampa home looking at the newspaper clipping she had hanging on her refrigerator so she was kind of like obsessed with the case and when the composite drawing came out she clipped the newspaper clipping and hung it up on her fridge oh so she was standing there and she was not looking like all oh, like all oh, like but like all oh, like cool because yeah. like yes. she wants to remember him yeah so she yeah wants to catch him. it's yeah. kind of like one of those things of like i need to keep this fresh in my yes. mind exactly yes. yeah so the clipping showed the composite drawing of the man from Madeira Beach rape case and um, so this woman's name is Joanne Steffi and she said that the woman resembled one of her neighbors so Steffi thought that the man was maybe 40 or even older he was about 5'10 with reddish blonde hair he was an aluminum contractor he was married he had a little girl he drove a dark blue Jeep Cherokee and lived two two lots down from the street from her in a house on the far west side of Tampa, only a few miles from the boat ramp where the three Rogers women had disappeared. His house was on a canal that led straight to the bay, and until a few months ago, he owned a blue and white bay liner that he had liked to take out at night. Yeah. For some, she was like, "I'm fucking, I'm pegging you for this." Shit. Yeah, she's like, "I see you, Holmes." Uh, for some time, even before she read the story in the newspaper about the Madeira Beach rape. She actually felt that there was something off about the neighbor. He was, like, really talkative and tried way too hard to be friendly and helpful. When he looked at her, she got this, like, really weird, creeped out feeling. And I will tell you that I'm the same way. When somebody's, like, too nice and, like, hey, buddy, let me get that for you. I'm like, okay, what the fuck do you want from me? Like, I I do not like people who... Are I don't, overly nice. Yes. I'm also I'm also the type of person that I don't like the person everybody else likes. Because they can't be that cool. Me. Like there's gotta be something wrong with them. Why does everybody like them so much? Yeah. So there was this guy that we went to high school with, that Jovi and I went to high school with. I will not mention any names because I story. do not want to uh 
call anybody out. But he was the type of person that, like, everybody fucking loved him. Like, he's so funny. He's so smart. He's so clever. We love him. He's so handsome. And I'm like, I don't like him. There's something about him that, like, is just off. And no matter who I talked to who knew him and, like, liked him, when I said that I didn't like them, they thought I was crazy. Years later, after we had graduated from high school, he actually wound up going into business with a person who was his friend in high school. And he like totally screwed the friend over. And I was like, I can't believe he did this. And I'm like, I can. I can believe he did this. I had that dude pegged in 1999. Nobody listened to me. But I'm the same. Like when someone likes someone so much. There's got to be something wrong with him. There's got to be something off. So when the composite came out in the paper the neighbor, Joanne, was like even more like, okay. Um, The morning after she read the story, she was driving down her street past the neighbor's house when suddenly it hit her. And again, it hit her as she gazed at the face in the drawing. It's him. She was really sure of herself that it was him. So at the time, she was actually going to classes at Tampa College to get her business degree. And there was a deputy in her accounting class. So she decided to tell the deputy, hey... This composite sketch of this guy, he looks a lot like my neighbor. I don't want to be involved, but just FYI, like, just wanted to let you guys know that this is, like, a thing. He's got a car that matches. Yeah, like, just letting you know this is a thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the lead, however, was never followed up on because the detectives that were investigating the case were never notified of her reporting. So, all right. So now some time's passing. It is now the beginning of 1992. The murders of the Rogers women have all but gone cold. But there is another piece of evidence that was about to come into play. Sorry, I'd be dragging that neighbor down the fucking street. (laughs) Yeah, for real. By the fucking ear. Exactly. So when they were processing the Rogers car, in the car there was also a brochure for Clearwater Beach. And on the brochure for Clearwater Beach, there was handwritten directions on it on the back by the map of Tampa Bay directions to the days in where the women were staying. But these directions, unlike the ones to the boat ramp, were not written by any of the Rogers women. So on the back of the brochure, written under the map of Tampa Bay, the writing said, Courtney Campbell Causeway, Route 60, days in. Originally, the detectives had thought that the person who shared the directions was possibly just someone helpful that gave the women assistance when they were on their way. But now the investigators saw it differently. After analyzing the timetable of the women's last day alive, as well as the psychological profile that was provided by the FBI, they thought that it appeared extremely likely that whoever had given the Rogers women the directions was also the same person who arranged to meet them later at the boat ramp. And the man who wrote the directions was almost certainly the killer. The writing was very distinctive. So the man that they were looking for printed all of his letters with a very understated R and an exaggerating curving hook extending from the bottom of his Y's. So like you you do your, your loop of your Y uh-huh. and then when your tail comes down, it really like exaggerates to the left. I think I subconsciously do my letters different. My letters look different all the time. And I'm like, nobody would ever be able to analyze it. Like, I literally, like, sometimes do an E like this, but then I'll, like, sometimes put a capital. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll, like, do... And I'm like... I really don't think they'd ever be able to identify my shit. How do people do this for a living? I agree. Because I'm like... I do my stuff, like, every different way. I agree. But they always say that, like, people do tend to write differently, but there's specific things that you, like, can't unteach. Okay, because I'm like, my Y will be like this. Or I'll do the hooky one. Mm-hmm. And then it pisses me off when one Y is like that and then the other Y is like that. And I'm like, what the fuck? It's the same sentence. What's wrong with me? I also do half printing, half cursive. Oh, okay. 
and it annoys me. Okay. I annoy myself. I'm glad I'm not alone. I'm sure there's a lot of people who agree that I am annoying. Um, so that May, so again, 1992, May 1992, there was another press conference where the detectives announced the new theory about the killer. He encouraged, uh, the detectives encouraged the media to publish samples of the handwriting and asked anyone who recognized the writing to please call. So our girl, Joanne Steffi, the neighbor, she never dropped her suspicions about her neighbor, whose name happened to be Oba Chandler. Hmm. I think we mentioned him once or twice. She said, Um, yeah, exactly. Yo! Hello, I told you something. Um, (laughs) I said something like three fucking years ago and y'all ain't listening. Exactly. So when she picked up the newspaper the morning after the press conference... Uh, this is Thursday, May 14th, 1992, by the way, and read the quotes about the handwriting and how it was key to finding the killer, she found herself wondering if she should report her suspicions yet again. Um, the police were saying the killer probably had a job not far from where he had met Joe and her daughters, um, and Steffi remembered that her former neighbor was an aluminum contractor who built porches and additions for homes, but she couldn't remember where his office had been. So she went next door to ask her neighbor, Moselle Smith, if she did. Smith had once hired the man to add an aluminum porch to another house she owned somewhere else in Tampa. She said she thought he worked out of his home, but then something occurred to her. When she hired him to build the porch, he filled out a contract for her. A handwriting sample now exists for Oba Chandler. Snap. Yeah. So the women gather all this evidence that they gather, right? The pictures of him that they, because they know what he looks like. And they have, right? Exactly. So they. I'd be like, I know, for real. Could you imagine, like, you being the one, like, oh my God. And see, this just proves why it's important to save every paper, every bit of paperwork. Because you never know who's a murderer. Yes, exactly. (laughs) You never know. I'm not being facetious. You never know who's a killer. So they sent in all the evidence that they had gathered, but unfortunately the officers working the case were now so overwhelmed by the tips pouring in that the handwriting samples were like at the bottom of a pile, right? Now also in May Don't 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 call in with your suspicions unless you feel like it's a legit suspicion. Right. Like Yes. What was the case that we were talking about that that oh the Delphi. The Delphi murders yes. where they had to like that's why they're releasing so little information because, because people are over informing things that are not well, actually it was the elite. Delphi murders and it was the Maria Rudolph Maria Rudolph yeah because remember mm-hmm. they were inundated with all yes. these tips yes yeah. it's insane only if you believe you know like Joanne Legit. Steffi and Moselle Smith you don't want to yeah. they're like I'm just taking a guess because there's money no, on the these line. ladies know yeah. their shit yeah they know their shit So also in May, billboards also went up around the area with information about the case and requests for tips. But it wasn't until July, a month after the three-year anniversary of the murders, that a second round of billboards were put up. But this time, they included a handwriting sample that police suspected belonged to Roger's killer. So they put up the sample from the back of the brochure on the billboard. And they're like, come on! They're like, I gave you! (laughs) I gave you it. Joanne Stephanie and Moselle Smith and others had been calling the task force asking if anybody had checked out Oba Chandler and his handwriting sample. And each time they were told to please be patient, that the investigators were catching up on the tips and there's you're a backlog like, and blah, blah, blah. Excuse me, how can I be patient when I've already given you Correct. what you're looking for? And they, they're saying like, okay, well now you're putting up billboards and you're begging somebody to tell you, we are telling you, and now you're telling us you have too much information. So Steffi called and talked to the investigator who took her original tip. And she said, why are you people, what are you people doing over there? 
Um, she told, and the, the one who took the tip told her to be patient. So then Moselle's daughter was calling as well, pressing to know what happened to the facts of the contract and the check signed by Ober Chandler. She also talked to the same investigator that took Steffi's call. So this investigator told her that she, I can't get my hands on the facts right now. I'm overwhelmed with calls and you're just, I'm, I'm going to have to get back with you. So now they're getting like pissed. So, so Moselle Smith's daughter faxes the paper again, but this time she throws in a cover letter bristling with frustration is the quote from the article. And here's what the cover letter says. Here is another copy of Oba Chandler's handwriting on the back of his check in his drive. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, here's another copy of Oba Chandler's handwriting, and on the back of his check is his driver's license number. Although I'm sure you received numerous samples of handwriting, many of us are convinced that this handwriting is the same as the one published in the papers. We feel so strongly that they are one and the same that due to your lack of response, we are tempted to pursue this with a handwriting expert of our own. However, due to Commissioner Todd's new personal interest, we have recontacted you. We expect a response of this information as soon as possible. Thank you for assistance. When someone is like literally calling you and they're that like in persistent, I mean, yeah. Just take the fucking time to look yeah, at for it. Real. You're going to save yourself so much more time in the long run. Yes. Which dot, 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 you are correct, because the letter was difficult to ignore. The investigator looked at the writing on the contract and on the check, and she didn't know what to think. So she she brought this stuff over to Detective Moore, who's now the head of the task force that was um, bringing in the tips. So she brings all the stuff over to Detective Moore, um, and he was notified about the people in Tampa that just keep calling, insisting that they have the guy. So he looks over the notes and the facts, and Moore saw that this particular lead was one that was assigned to another investigator on the case. So he called the other detective, and he's like, just go over to these ladies' house and get the original, because the fax copy is is crappy, and I need to make sure that I'm seeing the original. So it is now Friday, July 31st, and this other investigator goes to the address in Tampa where Moselle Smith was waiting. Smith was not in the friendliest of moods. <laughs> she didn't want to be interviewed. If anything, she wanted them to answer her questions. <laughs> um, after weeks of trying to get the task force's attention, she wasn't sure she would give him the original of the contract. She was like afraid that if I give you this contract, you're going to lose it now. So, um, the detective said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take it. We'll take care of it, blah, blah, blah. So Smith wanted something more. And before she gave him the contract, she demanded that he sign a piece of paper acknowledging he was taking it and had a notary there at her house, had a notary there at her house, ready to notarize the paper. I that love he was this woman. I love her. I love both of them, but I love her. The brass. Like she's I love like, her. she's like, you're going to fucking notarize this before you <laughs> yeah. take it. Cause if you take my contract, I fucking want it back. So, oh um, so the detective's like, okay. <laughs> but of course he's like, all right, I need the paper. So he signs it, watches the notary stamp, get <laughs> pressed on there. And he takes the contract, drives back to St. Pete. So once they start to compare the contract with the writing sample, they're like, okay, we need to start moving on this pretty quickly. Cause they feel that Imagine the match is close. They're not really sure, but we need to make sure that we're getting things right because we think that this might be the thing. Imagine being that dude and you're just driving around and seeing the fucking billboards of your handwriting everywhere. <laughs> well, dot, dot, dot. So the detectives sent, set out to learn as much as they could about this Oba Chandler. So now he's living with his wife and daughter in Port Orange, which is across the state over by Daytona Beach. 
He used to live just two miles from the boat ramp where the Rogers uh, women went missing and at the time owned a 21-foot boat and uh, blue and white Bayliner boat and a dark blue Jeep Cherokee. So he's now not in town. So all the promising information was not enough for an arrest warrant, of course, because obviously like this is all still technically circumstantial, right? It can still all technically be a coincidence. Um, So as they're looking at all this stuff, one of the assistants um, at the task force offices spoke up and said, I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but this guy looks just like the composite. <laughs> so, like, they're so worried about the writing samples, they're not even, like, paying attention to the fact that he's, So, what like, he looks like. So, not only does he match the description and the signature and has all the stuff that they know this stuff has, he also looks exactly like the composite. So, now they knew that they had him, and now they knew they had to find the guy. So, they just had to prove it. So, they went about building their case, and in order to conceal his identity, they decided to use a code name, because if they started calling him by his name, they were afraid there was going to be leaks, and people were going to find out now, now through the grapevine, especially since he has local connections, he might know that now we're looking for him. So Mm -hmm. they... Um, they came up with a code name for him, one that played off not only his profession, but the fact that he clearly had no heart. They called him the Tin Man. <gasps> I know. I know. Oh, I know. I know. It's so good. So the task force set out gathering information about Chandler's criminal past. So all that stuff I was telling you about before, they dug up all that information about him. They even went to the Canadian rape victim from Madeira Beach. They went to her house and showed her a photo lineup, uh, including Chandler in the photo lineup. And she identified Chandler from the stack of photos. So after building their case, the detectives presented the evidence to the assistant state attorney, excuse me, the detectives presented the evidence to the assistant state attorney and finally got a warrant for Chandler's arrest, but not for the murders because they were still gathering evidence for those, but they were able to get an arrest warrant for the rape of the Canadian woman from a few weeks before the Rogers were killed. So they started tailing him over in Port Orange. Finally, Oba Chandler was arrested. So he didn't seem to be very like shocked that cops were arresting him but he did ask what he was being taken in for and when he was told sexual battery he had no reaction he was taken back to pinellas county that night um the evidence was gathered and chandler was eventually charged with the murders of joe michelle and christy rogers (sighs) so the trial of oba chandler finally begins two years later in late september 1994 the jurors were actually picked from a pool in orlando and were bused to pinellas county where they were sequestered for the duration of the trial Holy because shit. it was such a big so, case here yeah. in tampa bay God. that they knew they weren't going to be able to find people who didn't already know about it or didn't already have a bias so yeah crazy what the So their star witness was Chandler's rape victim from Canada. Um, And he, she of course poked the biggest holes in his character. And then the fact that um, Oba Chandler made ship to shore, collect calls to his home the night of the murders that were time stamped were the smoking gun they needed to blow up his alibi and question him into the corner. So he made six calls um, all together across, through the night. The first one was at 1 a.m. early morning after the Rogers went missing. And the last one was later that morning around 9 a.m. Chandler's alibi um, of making the calls overnight was saying that he had a fuel leak in his boat, uh, but that he was like miraculously rescued in time to make it to a job at like 7.30 in the morning at somebody's house. Bullshit. Yes. So then they're like, but then why did this one come in at 9 a.m.? Like it was like they were able to kind of talk him into a corner. It's insane. And I highly recommend finding this article and reading it. We're going to try and uh, put the 
the link to this article on the Instagram so you guys can read it because it's just absolutely insane. The reading the section where they question Chandler on the stand and like get him to basically like fold is phenomenal. It took the jury only five minutes to unanimously find Oba Chandler guilty on all three counts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to death. On October 10th, 2011, Florida Governor Rick Scott signed a death warrant for Chandler. His execution was set for November 15th, 2011 at 4 p.m. The death warrant was signed uh, the day before Chandler's 65th birthday. So on November 15th, for his last meal around 11 a.m., Chandler ate two salami and mustard sandwiches on white bread and half a peanut butter and grape jelly sandwich. He asked for unsweet iced tea, but did not drink it. Instead, he had coffee. The execution process started at 4.08 p.m. and at an and at approximately 4.25 p.m., Oba Chandler was pronounced dead after receiving a lethal injection at the Florida State Prison in Rayford, Florida. Oba Chandler declined to make any last statement before being executed, and Hal Rogers, the husband and father of the victims, attended his execution. So I craziness, right? I've never heard of that. I never heard of it either. And I hope, I hope that I did our listener, Kelly, uh, her story that she submitted to us. I hope I did it justice. Uh, Kelly, shoot us an email if you, uh, want to, I'm curious to hear what you think. And I hope that I, um, cause it was a lot of information and I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave anything out, um, so I, I try to stuff it full of, of as much information as I thought was relevant, because the story itself is just absolutely insane. So, um, but yeah, that is the story of the murders of Joe, Michelle, and Christy Rogers in uh, 1989, here in uh, over here in Tampa, Florida. Crazy. Craziness. So, may they rest in peace. <sighs> yeah, 34, 17, and 14. Crazy. 34. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She was 36. 36, 17, and 14. Still younger than me. Just think how much sooner they could have killed him if they would have taken the initial hints. Yeah. Joanne Steffi and... uh, Joanne Steffi and her neighbor, Miss Smith. Moselle Smith. Moselle Smith. My heroes. They're seriously the heroes of the entire story. They really are. And being so persistent and then getting um, Moselle Smith's daughter in on it to call like... You know what it actually reminds me of? The Maria Rudolph story. Mm-hmm. And even though it seemed to not pan out because he wound up getting out later because now it's unsolved again. But the his sister who called up and was like, this is the last time I'm calling you people. Yes. Yeah, that's I have exactly given this tip me. how many times that my brother murdered this girl. This is the last time I'm telling you. If you're not going to arrest him, I'm washing my hands. I'm no longer guilty of holding yeah. the secret. And that's how I feel about Moselle Smith and Joanne Steffi. Like... We have this evidence. This is the last time I'm going to send it to you. We think this guy killed these women. Please arrest him. <laughs> like, but like, and here's my oh my thing. God. If they didn't, what would have happened if they weren't so persistent? Yeah, this, that's what I'm that saying. He would have never gotten caught because yeah. they were so... I mean, granted, I'm sure they had a crap ton of tips and stuff pouring in, but I'm sorry, if you have to have somebody be that persistent, call yeah. more than two or three times to say, uh-huh. hey... I know you're getting a lot, but this is kind of important. We we know the guy. Like, yes. everything's right there. And as you guys are talking, I do want to pull this up because there was something else that popped up in um, on the Wikipedia page for him that it seems as though after his death, 
he was found to be responsible for another murder. And that's the whole thing is the fact that because you're not. Well, and this is the thing. You, they're talking about him using like concrete blocks to put, put people under the water. It's like how many how many more people mm-hmm. is possibly under there that. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. So on February 25th, I'm reading this right from Wikipedia. So uh, please excuse the direct quoting. So I'm going to do my best here. Um, So on February 25th, 2014, investigators reveal that DNA evidence identified Oba Chandler as the murderer of Ivelisse Berrios. uh, I'm going to butcher this. Nope. Sorry. Uh, It's B-E-G-U-E-R-I-S-S-E. Beguirisi. I'm sorry. I'm awful. Um, she was raped and strangled in Coral Springs, Florida on November 27th, 1990. So a year and a half after the Rogers women were killed. So would that, if, if he was, he raped the, the, the victim from Canada in May, in May of 89. Right. And then he did the three Rogers girls, June of 89. Did it say how the Roger girls actually did? Did he put them underneath while they were alive? It did it say anything? did not okay. say that they all evidence that they were all three raped and then all three thrown overboard. But I did not read if they were drowned or if they were killed on the boat and, and then, then thrown overboard. That I do not know. And then he raped um, the woman that you had just mentioned. So would that make him a serial rapist? Serial or rapist? I'm guessing yes. But not a serial because Mur- he only did murdered the well no well That's, uh, the three are at one time so that doesn't yeah. technically uh, count okay. as separate um, well either way he had serial intentions of he had serial he intentions serial is a hundred percent correct <laughs> um but yeah she was she was raped and strangled in um, in Coral Springs, Florida on November 27th, 1990. She was only a 20 year old. She was a 20 year old newlywed and she was last seen at the Sawgrass Mills mall where she worked, worked at a sporting goods store. That's my, near Miami, right? Uh, Sawgrass Coral Springs. Coral yeah. Springs. Mm-hmm. Wow. When she did not return home, her husband went to the mall and found her car, a 1984 Ford Tempo and the tires were slashed. It's believed that Chandler, after watching the victim for two days, slashed the tire Slash the tires arrived in the guise of a helpful stranger and offered to help. Three hours. Okay. That's why when people that's ask me, Bundy I'm going to be yeah. honest. That's why whenever I've had a flat tire and people men ask me to change it, I say no, it's fine. Yeah. Like I literally had, literally, I got a flat tire one time and I called my friend who is a girl and I was like, "Can you come help me change my tire?" And she's like, "Yeah, that's fine." And I had three guys offer me and I was like, "No, I'm fine." And then she showed up and she's like changing the tire and then this other guy stopped. And then he changed it for her. And then she's like, and I was like, yeah, I had three other guys. And she's like, why don't you let them? And I was like, I don't fucking know who they are. I was like, if you're, if you're going to come over here and help me change my tire. Now I got triple A and now I'm fine. Um, so I looked it up and yes, it does seem as though, um, all three female bodies were found, uh, face down, bound with a rope. Uh, blah, 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 blah. All three victims had water in their lungs, proving that they had been thrown into the water while still alive. That's fucking cruel. And Michelle, who was identified as the second body found, the 17-year-old, she was the one who had freed her hand from the bonds before she drowned. So, yeah. Crazy. Mm-mm. <sighs> well, all right, guys. So that is this week's episode of Bad Crime Stories. That was a real heavy one. So I do uh, thank you all for sticking with us. Um, Stay tuned. Next week is a... 
a little bit better. We're going to try to make things a little bit more light. Um, But uh, yeah, as per always, just want to let you guys know that we love you all very, very much. And uh, we appreciate every single one of you. And again, a special thank you to Kelly for uh, sending us an email and suggesting the the story. And guess what? You guys can do the same. Bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. You know, now we've had a first, so you guys can... Thanks, Kelly. ...can follow along. Yes, we appreciate you. Um, all right. So wherever you listen to us, make sure that you like, subscribe, share the pod, um, leave a review that helps us get more people to listen to us. Uh, follow us on social media at Bed Crime Stories on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we're very active on the gram not so much on the Twitter and we are getting a TikTok uh, started. A ticky talk. Um, and once that is up and running, we'll make sure that we share information about our Tic Tacs on the Instagram. Um, I'm old and I don't understand Tic Tacs, so it should be interesting. This is what happens when... I'm learning. Yes. Older millennial slash Gen X-ish people try to get into Wait, modern technology. I'm not even Gen X. No, no, I'm, oh, okay. I'm an older millennial Gen X. I don't understand Oh, TikTok. you're Gen X. Well, no, I'm Wait. an older millennial, but I'm definitely on the cusp. What's, what's after us? Gen is it Z. Gen Z? Oh, yeah. okay. All right. So I think that's it. We... Yeah. tagged our socials we did all that fun stuff so uh again thank you guys all so much for listening we will talk to you all next week but until then sweet, sweet dreams, dreams. Uh. our theme song is the song industrial music box by kevin mcleod at incompetech.com licensed under creative commons by attribution 3.0 creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0